Welcome to Kashmir's on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashmir's Magazine. Sorry we're a little bit late today. We have a wonderful guest, and hopefully that'll make up for it in, uh, with, with extra. We have Rabbi Avram Wright, who's been appearing on this show for, I don't know how many times, the fourth time, I believe. Anyway, it's been a, always been a pleasure. We've had such varied topics no. over the time. But last year we did have a show on matzah, chabura matzahs. And today we're continuing the topic of matzah. And we have a lot of things to discuss. If anybody wants to call in and can reach us, it's not so easy, but you can reach us at 718-683-5858. But we're only talking matzahs. I don't want, I don't want to hear anything else. Habura matzahs, hand-baked matzahs is the best. But whatever it is about matzahs, 718-683-5858. You can call anytime. And now, without further ado, here's my guest, Rabbi Avram Wright, who is the author of how many books altogether? Four in print. And I'm looking at Matzah Zoo, which we actually mentioned last time, which is a wonderful little booklet on the importance of uh, of, of the uh, preparing of matzah. I think it's just Chabura matzah, not just Chabura. Basically, Chabura matzah. Very good. And we also um, want to mention that Rabbi uh, Wright also is, is now doing a camp. We spoke about this last year, but I have a brochure in my hand for Camp Yeridea. So I, I missed out on camp Yoridea. I went to Yeshiva and learned Yoridea, and I teach Yoridea, but this is the first one I've ever seen, Camp Yoridea, which is a practical, hands-on, inf- uh, uh, exciting program, which we're going to hear a little bit about later on. But first, before further ado, let me welcome Rabbi right here to the station. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having us tonight. It's a pleasure to be back and share a, a nice discussion about Matas. We want to talk tonight about Kabur Matas. I also want to like to discuss tonight the the article that I have in the Tasha's magazine about my matzah journey, the trip that I took to cost wheat to bake matzahs. So where should we start, Rav? Start wherever interests you. Well, I'll tell you, I want to tell you something. Uh, that article is a big hit. It, uh, a lot of people... I'll tell you off the air, <laughs> but a lot of people who um, it opened up their eyes. You know, there's something you can write a story from or halachas or whatever it is from the point of view of this is the halacha or this is what you should do or the article that I sent you from uh, we're going to discuss a little bit also maybe uh, you know what is the better way to do something and then there's a completely different thing that. The article is My Matzah Journey, which is uh, really, uh, a journey was a good, a good choice because it's not an odyssey. It's, it's a journey you chose to do because you wanted to go through the whole experience from beginning to end to understand how it really works from the inside, not to watch from the matzah bakery from the, from the distance or some people just pass by and look at, oh, very interesting. Not to, you know, but to get your hands in it, but not just one part of it, the whole thing, the whole matzah. That's beautiful. It, it, and I, I'm telling you, the readers really appreciate it. So you'll tell us a little bit about the matzah journey. Let's start with that one. The journey itself was, was very interesting. It took me many months, and at that, the real, really 
this article is based on her two years' experience. I packed it into one article, but it was the experience of two years. The easy part was actually going out the field and cutting the wheat. That was very easy. You stood in the heat, the boiling hot sun. There's no, if you see the picture, that's not a picture that I sent you, but that's a picture. <laughs> it is, it is. That's a picture, that's a picture. That is, that is, yes. But we took and cropped it. That's what we feel looks like. It's open and there's no shade and it's just, you're, it's that time of the year which is really, really hot sun and there's no drinking. You can't take it, you can't get a drink. You can walk about the 20 minutes out of the field back to where the cars are parked and you can get a drink there. So by the time you... You need <laughs> it again. You need it again. But that's just... You know, the endurance right. that. That wasn't hard. And there's a lot of people here. So if you don't know what you're doing, there's people there who can help you. There's people there with many years' experience. And there are people who invest a tremendous amount of money. I, I, I think I sent you pictures. The people that come with tents. They have yeah, 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 sure. Like the guys you see on Ocean Park. Yeah. With, or right, right, yeah. With the tents yeah. They put up for the, um, they sell the flowers. Right. So they had these contents and they're moving through the field as they were. <laughs> so that was really relatively easy. The hardest part I found was sifting. We, not with sifting itself as hard, it's, it's time consuming, it's boring, but how do you get it right? Nobody knew the answers and how to get it right. There are people out there who are doing it for years and years, and the commercial guys do it a different system than we do. Nobody knew where to get the right equipment, and nobody knew where to, uh, what the right numbers are. We, we, they've already removed the kernel yeah, from yeah, the, I'm from I'm the I'm that, I'm just, But now sift the easiest part, which was yeah. cutting the wheat <laughs> and restoring it. Part, which was sifting. We, we are sifting the flour at the sifting end. The flour, yeah. Sifting the flour, yeah. You have to ground the flour, which takes time and takes energy, but it's not hard work. There's no fault there's no in that. But sifting the flour at the end, that, that's what I found to be the hardest. Would, would, no, no, one's using, no one's using standardized uh, there's no sift. Standard, there's no standard in the home matzo industry, there's no standardized equipment. This commercial stuff that the guys are using, and, and the commercial bakery, stuff is what what's each bakery up? chose yeah. a certain mesh. Uh-huh. I'll talk about what the mesh is in a second. Each bakery chose a mesh, and they have thousands of pounds of flour in that mesh, and they know exactly what they're doing, and they have all of their flour is exactly the same. I need to get my flour without their help. I need my flour to match their flour, so when it gets to their bakery, they should be able to work with it. Because if my flour is thicker or thinner than their flour, they don't they won't have to deal with it. And what will happen is, I'll leave for the listeners to understand, what will happen is that if, if, you, if you use your flour, they, they, the water won't, they won't know how to work the water together with it, and it will either come out too thin or too thick. If it's too, if too thick, then it may not get baked properly. If it's it too thin, it will yeah. get rolled properly. If it's too thin, or will stick to the poles, or stick to the table, or stick to everything, right? And they won't be able to pick it up and move it. Right. It's too thin; it, it will stretch. When they try to lift it, it will pull apart. So, so how, so how did you, uh, so it was, it's how did you figure it out? That's probably and, there. And, and every sift, of course, like about twenty dollars, and you keep trying until you get one that works. But this, what's? Let's go to the mesh again. What mesh were they using what, what, in the? Well, let's first, well, what is mesh? Every sifter is um, has is, has wires, metal wires, plastic wires. Or, or threads, right? Whatever, whatever, whatever material it's made from, it has, it has. I think it's basically wires. plastic. So, well, well, um, the Russians have a little, little stainless steel. 
So the, the wires, the, the number of wires running through the inch, through every inch of space of the sifter, that's mm-hmm. the mesh. So if you have two wires, that's a two mesh. If you have, I'm sorry, you have two, two wires, two mesh, and 20 wires would be 20 mesh, and 50 wires would be 50 mesh. And obviously, the more wires you have in a space, in an inch, the smaller the hole will be, and the, the smaller the particle need to be to be able to go through that hole. Are the are the actual mesh? Are they actually the standardized thickness? If you're dealing with reputable companies, they're standardized thickness. If you're dealing with Chinese companies, <laughs> well, the first gift I bought was a two dollar Chinese filter, and it advertised itself as a uh, maybe a, I think a twenty five, and I, it was definitely less than twenty. I know, so, I know, I know that I've experienced with the Chinese. So, the, so yeah. it was a. Um, I, I thought I was getting about what should be considered hip, what's part whole wheat. It's considered part of wheat, which is the ideal type of flour that bakers like to work with. It has the right consistency, the absorbency, and the, and the elasticity that they can work with it. But I ended up with something that was really almost whole wheat, as in whole wheat. The whole wheat to go through. Very little stayed out. In fact, as I was sifting, I noticed that if I sifted longer, the everything went through the sifter. Min- so when I sifting, that the flour is actually right. it has in the wheat germ and the, and the um, bran and everything going right through. So you bought different sifters, and you found. But what, what is the commercial? Uh, when when with the, the commercial bakers, what are they using for their sifter? Every baker has different mesh. Whatever makes it, whatever works in their system. Some are giving you a little more whole wheat, some are giving you a little less whole wheat. But every all all hand matter is a combination of part whole wheat because they the bran and that stuff in the, in the flour works for, in, in the favor of the bakery, making it easier to deal with the dough. They can lift the dough better and, and, and um, stretch it better and stuff. It has, it has part whole wheat. Well, but, they, but they also do use whole wheat. They call, uh, add the nut. They, they add in more whole wheat. They have full whole wheat right. and they have part of it. Now, it's interesting you mentioned that adding whole wheat. I don't know if you're allowed to add back in the bran and the, sha- and the germ that came out. Shachnoch says that you're allowed to be, you're allowed to knead the flour with flat with a flour that has the morsen and the and subin in it, whichever morsen and subin are. There's the machlekes and the mishkuru brings the machlekes. What's morsen? What's subin? But either way, whatever the, one's the bran, one's the germ, and either way, whatever it is, you allowed if it, if it, was, if it was never removed, you're allowed to use it. But you're not allowed to put morsen and subin into your matzah flour. That's what Machaber says. So I don't know if a bakery do it, but I can't imagine that they do something. What they must be, like they're probably do. doing yeah, yes, what you're saying, where they have a, uh, they have a flour that has a lot of whole wheat and hasn't been removed, and they mix that with one that has been, but also they do what they call whole wheat. I don't know when they, I read in this article that we were schmoozing about, but they, that, that uh, they sometimes mix it. No, the other article, the other that that they yeah that's yours that they they would that he talks about the um, uh, about mixing the flowers but but what I, but I don't know what they do in the bakery I know that they now announce we're using now whole wheat and the difference between the whole wheat and the and the, the plain flour the white flour is so dramat dramatically different that it messes everything up when they start doing it right away. I'm in. I'm watching the ovens. That's my job. When in the, I mean, taking the matzahs out and examining the matzahs, and I, what I see is that when they switch over to the, the whole wheat, the, the, the whole, whole wheat, wheat is so hard for them to get it properly baked. 
it what happens is it 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 ends up to be soft extremely soft because they don't want it to burn and this and that until he gets it just right because if the, the water and the and the flour ratio is not proper when it goes in if it's not a dry kind of a, a dough when it goes in what you have is the outside of it the top and the bottom will get baked and inside it won't be baked are you talking about the bakery's whole wheat flour or that special blend or are you talking about the Chaim Shigar whole wheat well, I, I don't. Flour that you brought to them. I, I don't really do it anymore. My son does that, but the, there was there is Rechaim Shayad, but we're not talking about Rechaim Shayad. We're talking about what they call whole wheat, and they're using regular, and then they're using whole wheat. And I, according to this article, it was a blend. I don't know if it's really a blend or not. They shouldn't be having a hard time if they just switch to whole wheat because these guys are switching every day. Right. Back and forth. Right. They shouldn't have a hard time just because it's whole wheat. There's pro- if you experience that, it's probably something unique that was going on at that time that was causing the trouble. It happens every year, and always the owner runs in, and he starts saying, "Is it okay? Is it okay?" And invariably, I show him that it's soft. He's okay. We're going to change it. We adjust it. He goes back, adjusts the water flour relationship and the, and ratio, and then and then we go further. What I like to point out is that the things that I catch, I'm catching. But that's not what goes on when I'm not there, which means that w- the point we always like to make is that the chabura matzah is, uh, you know, is, a, is a better shot at it than, than uh, when, when you're buying without the chabura matzah. I agree with uh, chabura matzah is definitely a better shot at getting a mechudah matzah or buying something in the grocery store. But I want to get clear that I've never been to a bakery that I thought was producing hummus. No. Uh, any bakery I've ever been to the matzahs are always kosher, at least with the oven. Sometimes, you know, it's less mudder, more mudder. But I've never been to a bakery that, I, that you can say was, called, was producing hummus. No, no, we're not talking about hummus. hummus. We're talking, we're that, talking about mudder. not, not necessarily baked fully. That's which, what is, which is not even a halachic requirement. Once no, it a, isn't. Once a matzah is, reaches a certain degree of baked, with the mark, with the shachanach calls karmu panel, or, or a second title is once it reaches those two, one of those two stages, which according to Shura really is the same, um, once it reaches that, it's, it's considered Correct. matzah, even though it's still bendable, stretchable, and all that. Correct. But we're talking about where, I mean, what I saw my, with my own eyes is that the top and the bottom could get baked. It's like anything that, you know, that needs more, means more baking time. The, the the visual inspection that we, you would have to say, oh, this is done, that works for a matzah that's going on a certain standard form, which is going in uh, ready to be baked properly by that system. Well, if something goes in where it's got too much water inside, then it, retain, it retains that water too long, and you could get the top and the bottom looking pretty well done, while in the middle, it, will, it won't be, it'll be chutim neshachim. That's what I'm referring to. Okay. So let's go back to your journey. What got me into the idea of going to cut the wheat? There was a few factors. One was, like I write in the article, I wanted to, I, I wanted to experience the whole matzah industry from the beginning to through the end, and I wanted to like know what makes things happen, why they happen, why they happen. So I figured I had to be out there and see it and watch it happen. But that's not unique. 
Everything you do is that way, Rabbi, right? You do that with the chauffeur, you do it with the little Vanessa. Some people like to learn about it. Some people like to learn it well enough to be able maybe to pask in a Shiloh. But there are some people like yourself, and I know a few more, that like to be inside it, to really get it, to know what it is from the inside, not from the outside. The other, the other, yeah, you're right about what you said. <laughs> the other reason why I wanted to go out there and experience myself was there's an undercard, which is not so much in the street. It, a little bit was for a while, years ago, which is the Green Wheat Tumult. Are you sure? Wheat? Yes, definitely. The Green Wheat Tumult was at what stage do you have to cut the wheat to make sure that the wheat itself is no longer subject to feeds? That the wheat itself, rolling out in the field, can become common sick. According to Shulchan Aruch, if the wheat grew to the stage that no longer needs to be connected to the ground in order to continue growing, if that, at that step, at that stage, it's, if it gets wet from rain or dew even, it can become common stick. So the question is, at what stage is that? At what, at what stage is that? What do you do the line? And there's a tumult about it, and I wanted to go out in the field and see for myself what they're talking about. Right. Okay, so let's hear. Let's hear what you saw. I don't have any conclusive. Any, but any when you went out, about, you about, about either topic. I, I just went out to experience it, and I I'm still investigating. Well, the way the Shimon Eider used to teach us these halachas, and he, he described where, first of all, I saw in Chuvis about discussions about where there was a big rain, and there was a question about whether the wheat is chomets now. Because what happens is, he explained that it's possible that if it's dried out enough, that even though it's a standing wheat, that if, if the rain pulls it down into the, and sits in the water for a certain amount of time, you might get chimutz, even then it might, may flop up again, and it may look like it's fine, but maybe there's chimutz inside. That's the concern that, that uh, they had. There's old, old, old chuvas about this. There's a lot of discussion about it, and I'm still in the investigating stages. I don't have anything to report. So when you're ready to report, you, you let me know. We'll come back and drag in, even if it's in the middle of So let's go a little bit more with your journey. Go ahead. One thing I know for sure I accomplished was that I cut the wheat myself and that it was cut the Because when you use a machine to cut wheat, there's a machlaikis in the Achreinim, whether machines can do something and consider the shema. Okay, so the machlaikis Achreinim, and the machlaikis Rishonim, whether the cutting of the wheat has to be done the shema. So, Shechan Aruch Paskins Achachili wanted to do the cutting of the wheat with shema. With the other, you can buy. Flowers is not called the Shema, but what's called what's called cutting wheat the Shema? Well, you can use a machine to be a lacha and some tough samach. Tough samach is a very long be right there in the beginning. But he goes into this question of. It's something good. Together, share together. The to be a lacha goes into this question is whether the whether a machine, he's talking about water wheels, whether a machine or an animal pulling the, 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 um, the, the, the wheel of the, um, what's it called, the chaim, the, the, the grinding stone. If the animal pulls the grinding stone, it can, can that be considered lishma? So the Biyalacha goes both, the, he, he, he explores both ends, and he says, but the Yeved, you can have a machine do lishma. That's his, that's his conclusion. But the evidence, the water wheel is considered the Shema. So, 
if you have your machines doing stuff, so Allah says that that's kosher with the Evet if you need Lishma. And being that we want to do Lishma, so why would I want to do it in a way that Allah says only with the Evet? So if I know the choice and I had to get my grain from a, um, a factory, so then I would st- be stuck. But being that it's not a big deal, it takes, well, it takes a few hours, I can go out and I can do the mitzvah properly, why shouldn't I? That was, and so that I accomplished. But why is it that but those those everybody seems to be going to the field to cut it? I mean, I don't I don't know that the uh, Hamish companies are using machines to cut the flour, to cut the grain. It seems to me that they're sending out people, like my son goes out and does it, and I'm sure that they they have other people who are going out and doing it. I see groups of people. You saw groups of people there. Isn't there a way to just sort of buy it on on the open market? Somebody did it else. Someone else did the fuelish more. The, to get the 20 pounds of, of flour that I needed to bake from matzah for my family, it took me and three of my children two hours to cut the wheat. So it's not an, an, an enormous amount of time for the amount of what food I need, but I'm not doing it for anybody else. Uh, you know, anybody's, doing the, anybody's going out and cutting, cutting it is cutting the bare minimum they need for themselves. You could... You could get, you could hire somebody to add for you, but you know it's, it takes twenty hours. It, take, it would take probably five, six hours to cut by yourself. Maybe you had better equipment or, or better, um, or better training, more experience. You can do it a little faster. But it, altogether, it's a lot of work. That's why none of the big bakeries do it by hand. All the big bakeries use, use the machine. I've been with some of the big bakeries cutting the fl- cutting the um, flour, cutting the grain for their matzahs, and they all use the machines. You can't not. You can't cut that quantity by hand, if, if you want to cut that quantity. But if you're just one person, you just want to do it for yourself, and it's just a matter of going for an hour, an hour drive to New Jersey and spending an hour or two in the field, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal to do an individual to do. And there's plenty of places that are an hour's drive from New York City or Lakewood that you can do this. And and if you could run into a matzah bakery and make a deal with him, will he use your flour to to make uh, to make matzahs for you? That's a, that's a touchy question because officially matzah bakeries are not supposed to be allowing outside ingredients in. But every matzah bakery is set up that way that people do rechaim shayad and people want to do it themselves. Particularly the chassidim would like to do rechaim shayad on their own. So some bakeries are set up we can do the rechaim shayad in the bakery, but most bakeries are not set up that way and certainly. 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't set up that way. You had to do Rechaim Shiyad. You, you want to do Rechaim Shiyad, you had to do it at home. But being that many, many, many people want to do Rechaim Shiyad, the bakeries have to tolerate Rechaim Shiyad. And once the, flat, the grain leaves their facility and you bring it back, so then, then they're stuck with that. They have to accept it and accept whatever you give them. The one thing that they do is they don't mix, they're not supposed to at least, mix the leftovers that you don't want to take back into their own matzah. Shiyad is carry in, carry out. Whatever flour you bring to the bakery, you have to take off the premises when you leave. So let's move now, Rabbi, right on to some of the, about the, what you did in your house and actually making the matzah, which I think is uh, the next step we really want to hear about, unless you have something else in between. Once I got the weed home, it's imperative to dry the weed immediately because the weed is moist. If it's not dried properly, very quickly, it will rot. So we have to transfer it in a place where the air could 
um, circulate through through the through the drying wheat. A bag. If I had a real old-fashioned sack, that would be good. But I, pillowcases work a little bit. What we used was a pack-and-play type of uh, crib, which it has the screens on the side and the bottom, the base, which is not a screen, but at least it's a breathable cloth. And we put it into a room with a dehumidifier. And it takes a few. It takes a few days, uh, maybe two weeks, until it was really dry, dry enough to thresh. But this you do right away in June when you cut the wheat. But the threshing, there's no rush on the threshing. You can do that anytime you want. But the the grain before the threshing takes up a lot of room. It takes up a lot of room. So uh, when I started, I, st- I think initially I started this year with four ba- four like those egg carton boxes that you get from the grocery stores. I started with four of those size boxes of grain. That takes up a lot of space. If it's dried, it was reduced to two. But it still takes up space. If the threshing... I can reduce all that into one pillowcase. <laughs> so there's a, there's a benefit in getting it done as soon as possible. The threshing was the, was the most interesting thing because I, the first year I said, you know, I'm doing old-fashioned type of threshing. I'm going to step on it, jump on it. And we tried that. And it took forever, and the job never got done. You know, it worked a little bit slowly, slowly, slowly. Um, then I did a little research and discovered that for $5, you can make a mechanical thresher. It's a rod. They sell the Home Depot for like $2 and a piece of chain that costs another $2 and some lock nuts. You, cha- you, lock, you, you bolt the chain onto the rod, you connect the rod to a drill, you put everything into a five-gallon bucket, and in two minutes, you have, not even two minutes, in one minute, you have the whole bucket threshed. And you change it, you change it, you change it, you have your whole, you have your whole wheat threshed in a few minutes. And, that, and, and it's interesting to watch it. You know, you think back to the to how Chazal they did it in Chazal's time with the old fashioned with the cow and the and the boards and stuff is, and here we can do it Baruch Hashem and all this in a few minutes. And while you're doing that, you, you're, if you're a yeshiva guy, so you're remembering right back in seventh grade, you learned Machnas Dori and what that what that means. If you're if you learn you remember that the, the threshing floor. And here you can see that you can do everything in a little five gallon bucket in five minutes, get the whole job done. And yes, you do get. Colonel scattered all over the house. <laughs> and then, then how, do we, how do we proceed from there? What else do we do next to get to make the the, the next step is winnowing. So winnowing, they tell you in school, means that you, stint, you go out, take outside and you throw it up in the wind. You throw it up in the wind and you have all your wheat scattered around the neighborhood and nothing left for your matzahs. Don't try that. And if you do have some left, you sweep it up, it's going to be more pebbles than... Then we don't try it that way. Try, try much more modern technology. Use a fan, and you use a cup like the, like a washing cup, that style cup, and you pour wheat by the cupful into a bucket. So you stand up, you have the hold, you hold the cup in your hand, a bucket on the floor underneath you, or next to you, and you pour it in there. And if it's a really windy day, you don't need anything else. But if it's otherwise, put a fan next, put a fan, and it's fascinating to watch because the fan does not blow the kernels does not blow the kernels. The kernels fall straight down and everything else gets blown away. You have a big um, bag full of, everything is mush. You don't even see the kernels. There's so much of the other stuff, the shaft and the straw in the bag. You don't see anything. And by the time you're done, you reduced your quantity to about half, but it's all kernels. It's fascinating to watch. Sometimes, if you're not so good at it, you need a little experience. So you have to, may have to do, you have to do it once. You have to re, re, re-window the whole thing to get out the remaining shaft. 
but a little bit of chaff or soil stuff in the thing, not a problem. It goes through the grinder, and you can eat it. And, and then we then then we already said that about the sifting, so we got rid of uh, whatever brand we were not going to use. Right, first grinding. Grinding. Okay, grinding first. Well, let's go. Then we'll go to the grinding. Grinding is first. Grinding is interesting because it's um it's it's a very manual, it's intense labor. It takes a lot of energy, but what I did was I didn't tighten the screws. Literally, literally didn't tighten the screws. So the first time I put everything through the through the grinder. I only really crushed it, or it's called cracking it, and it wasn't so hard. Now I passed it through a second time, a little bit tighter, and between the two passes, I got enough flour that I, for what I needed, and I didn't bother exerting myself to do it a third time on a tighter setting to get at the last bit of flour. I could have, but it wasn't worth the effort. In um, in in the in the lachs about tashas, there's always the debate between the value of the effort compared to the value of the, pro- the product. So I didn't think that the product I can get from is worth the effort to do it. So we skipped, so we skipped the, third, the third grinding, and instead we got, nine, I think I ended up with 19 and a half pounds of flour from just these two passes, which was more than adequate for, for my needs. And then we went on to the sifting, which we, did, we mentioned before. And then uh, we're going to get in a second to the baking, but let me ask you first a little bit about, uh, well, let, let me take a second and we'll talk about our, our advertiser and then we'll be able to, uh, uh, to get back to the Rabbi Wright and, and we'll be dis- discussing the baking of the matzahs. And when I think of uh, Glatmark, conveniently located at 1205 Avenue M, I think of price, service, convenience, and quality. Whether you shop for a few items or for a full wagon load, you can save plenty of money by shopping at Glotmart. And at Glotmart, you can save time using their, uh, their, their parking area. Just pull into Glotmart from the East 12th Street entrance. You can park the car there and have it ready to load up with those special items you purchased in the store. And some of the items that are on sale right now at Glotmart, today and tomorrow, family pack chuck ground beef, $3.79 a pound. Matambri, uh, great for rotlata. $9.99 a pound. Family pack filet steak, $9.99 a pound. Beef chuck pot roast, $9.899 a pound. Family pack shoulder steak, $9.49 a pound. And pickled veal roast, $9.99 a pound. And if you take advantage of ordering your Pesach takeout order from Glotmart by, by tomorrow, you can save 5%. Or with a $100 minimum, you'll save 5% on your purchase. So uh, get busy with that. You can either go in there or you can do it over the uh, phone or probably or over the internet. And at we also there's also selling Noam Gourmet Gefilte Fish, $3.99. Idaho potatoes, 5 pounds each, uh, two packs for $3.00. Mishpach or Hadar potato starch, one sixty nine. These are just a few items uh, that are on sale now. And the Glatmart, the quality of meats is A1, with kosher certification for both the Star K and the Vatakashas of Flatbush, with base Yosef meats and with expert Nikor. At Glatmart, you're getting quality kashras. Glatmart is at 1205 Avenue M, meaning your shopping needs is their top priority. If you meet Dovin Glatmart, tell him you heard about Glatmart on Kashras on the Air, over J Root Radio. And now we're going to go back to our guest, Rabbi Avram Wright, who is discussing his matzah journey, and we're up to making the matzahs. I believe we're getting close enough to make the matzahs. Go ahead, Rabbi Wright. There's less to report at making matzahs because most of us have been there as a tourist or as a participant to been to a matzah bakery. 
and we've seen what goes on. But what's interesting is that because it's Rechaim Shayad, and because I had my issues with the sifting as I spoke about earlier, the, the dough was a much softer dough and a much wider dough than what the baker is used to. So they do a little adjusting, as you mentioned, you know, they had adjust a little bit on their, on their side, how much the water and stuff and, and the amount of kneading that was necessary to get it to be the way they needed it to work. But I ended up with a really white um, flour matzah, which is unusual because most matzah we said earlier is really a half or part whole wheat. Even the what's called the regular matzah is part whole wheat because it makes it easier for them. My matzahs, at least this year, are really white matzahs. But I don't mean that the color of the matzah is white because the color of the matzah, the color of the matzah has to do with the type of wood that they use in the oven. The, the, the wood produces the color of the matzah. It's really like food coloring almost, the way it works. The, the smoke makes the color of the matzah. So that the color of my finished matzah is dependent upon the, the, the wood that the baker used. Let's hear a little bit about you came in with the, for twenty pounds is not a big deal for them, but they were they were cooperative with you to do everything that you needed, uh, and you were you, you were satisfied how the bakery handled the actual production. Is that correct? Yeah, I chose my bakery very carefully. I spent um, a year researching matzah bakeries and what they could offer me as a chabura, and you know do you do come with a chabura. But they have a very the baker that I used was a very has a very good system in place to begin with, and we just tweaked it a little bit to as a chaburah. And the main thing I bring to them is the is the chaim shiat. That's really the main thing that I'm using or that I'm doing differently than what their standard chaburah run would be. I mean, I also do a few things that the mishru says to do that that are expensive. If a matzah bakery had to do it every on their own all the whole time, but if I come my own people, we can pull it off without costing extra. And what are those things? <laughs> There's one thing that the, that the Mishru says to do. It's actually, I think, a quote of the Shalah. But the Mishru says to do it. That most matzah bakeries are not marked on their own. It's to switch the, the bowl between every dough. Not to use the same bowl for two doughs in a row. So most matzah bakeries can't afford to switch it because you need to have a guy full-time washing bowls. But you have a chaburah, so you have one guy washing, one guy drying. And you can pretty much keep the bowls moving and they can switch the balls enough times for an eight, so many doses in 18 minutes. That's, uh, that's interesting. And that's one of the things that people do try to do. And then always, how thick did your matzahs come out? Are they, were they uh, a, a thin? Uh, uh, or that should come out exactly the way their matzah bakery makes them. Yeah. Uh, so it's, a sta- it's pretty standardized. So you have no problem figuring it out then. All right, so you gave me an idea about uh, our, our matzah journey, which, I, as I said, was a big hit, and uh, uh, people are really enjoying the article. Uh, but na- now let's go on to a little bit about uh, the chabura you mentioned uh, about, we were talking about last year, and you mentioned we maybe should make some wor- a few words about it now, is about how to properly set up a chabura or... Uh, maybe something else, maybe if not, if not that people listening who will be setting up Chabura, especially this late time in the year, but maybe something else about participating in the Chabura. Maybe go back into some of the things we discussed last year about Chabura matzahs in general. I, I don't remember everything we discussed last year. I do know the key things I like to talk about when I, when I like to promote Chabura matzahs. The main reason to make a Chabura matzah is because 
Again, the main reason that Chabura matzah is because the Machaber and Shulchan Aruch says you're supposed to make matzahs as a Chabura and not buy them off the shelf. It's Machaber, it's in Shulchan Aruch. The Machaber says that a person should make the matzahs for a Seder by himself and that even the Rishonim, the Rosh, went by himself to make his own matzahs because it's mitzvah boy yitzvah Making the matzah is part of the mitzvah and a person should participate in making it himself. Not everybody has the wherewithal to do that, but those who could do it and most people can do it. There's enough matzah bakeries around the neighborhood. You just make, make an appointment and you go in. And even if you do nothing else besides be present at the time of Chabura, already you've accomplished, at the time of the baking of your matzah, you've already accomplished something because you, you fulfilled what the Shachnarch said, a mitzvah by Yaisi That's reason number one. Reason number two is Mishabura says that the reason to go to bake your own matzahs is because it's Rabba Amachshela. There's many things that can go wrong in a matzah bakery. That's what the Mishabura says. Now we do have. A system in place, and we have our bakeries are used exclusively for baking matzah. So a lot of the problems that the Achrein had to deal with have been eliminated. But well, there's one problem which can't be eliminated, and that is that you have a lot of people being paid to do the same job every day for eight or ten hours a day. It gets boring, real boring, and they can't keep their minds on it. They can't remain enthusiastic about it. As soon as you walk into the matzah bakery. It happens to me every time I walk into a matzah bakery, no matter which bakery I'm in, no matter if I'm baking there that day or not baking there that day, as soon as I walk in, everybody is full of pep and zim. Everybody is ready, vim, I mean, everybody is ready to go and do it with action and schmack. And that's enough of a reason why you should want to go bake your own matzahs. Just that the matzahs should be baked with Jesus. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, we had talked about possibly uh, about the baking matzahs at home. Uh, do you know people who bake matzahs at home? Is this something that, that is realistic? I know one or uh, two cases where people did it, uh, and they have machines now where you can buy a, 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 a wood for a furnace, uh, it's about $500 or something, the fellow in Israel sells it, and, you know, and what? About $2,000. $2,000 now, okay. And uh, so give us an idea a little bit about the real, whether it's realistic, whether it's advisable or not to do anything like this at all. You have to have guts. <laughs> if you're not the gutsy type, don't even try. But if you have guts, and there's plenty and plenty of people all over Brooklyn, Muncie, Lakewood that do this, particularly among the Hasidim who want to bake Erev Pesach matzahs, there's not enough Erev Pesach matzahs available for all the people that want them. So many, many people will invest a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars, depending on your needs and depending on what your setup is. And you can buy all the equipment you need to make your own matzah bakery, you need a garage or a basement where you have the room to store the equipment and keep them connected. The biggest expense is probably if you do, if you had to change it every year, you have to you have to get a plumber, a professional plumber, to to connect your your gas oven and disconnect it every year, and that would be a big expense. But other than that, you can do everything yourself in your in the comfort of your own home. Go out and cut your wheat yourself, your chaim shayad, and you'll have every level of shema possible. You can grind it at home, sift it at home. And you just need three or four friends who are willing to do exactly what the matzah bakery does. You line your tables with paper. You get yourself special. You get special. You get special bowls. You know that is designated for this job. The right size, the right shape, and you mix your, you mix your dough, you roll it, you bake it. There's I, I personally I only participated in, in home matzah baking one time, 
Last year, Erev Pesach, I wanted to watch some Svaradim do it. So I went, to a, a group, went with a group of Svaradim that they made their own matzahs Erev Pesach. But I know people that go every year to all over the place. There's bakery, there are Rebbes, like Shtibo Rebbes who have in their basements, mm-hmm. the setup, or in their garages, and they have it set up. And they make Erev Pesach, the people that, do, that make it, not just Erev Pesach, but they make it throughout the season. The initial investment of a few thousand dollars that it cost you to set up matzah bakery, if you have the place for it, is a lot cheaper than 10 years worth of matzahs. Okay, so we'll, we'll have to get some first-hand reports the, the next year from somebody who was listening to this show today. L- let me uh, let, let me find out a little bit more about uh, the camp. We're up to the camp now, Camp Yoridea. And uh, let, tell us a little bit about it. I mean, we, it had been mentioned before on one of the shows, and I was I don't I didn't know we're up to it really doing it. And give us an idea of what this is all about. I mean, I see uh, some wonderful areas that you're covering, like Kashrus, which is of course uh, something close to home. And uh, you, ha- you have here Safras and Shrita, and uh, learning about the different uh, Mesoras and the on the uh, of the different uh, birds. Shiluch Hakan, the chauffeur, Nikor, removing the, the, the veins and the, the chela from the meat. Let, let's hear a little bit more about this program because it sounds very exciting. The main idea is that Bochrim High School, Besmerish Age, Koil, they learn Gemaras and all the time the Gemara references some of these things. They learn Shachanarach and the Shachanarach references some of these things. And they're clueless about what, the, what these things are. And sometimes they go to people who are supposed to know the answers, like some of the picture books, and the picture books also didn't know. So, so they made up something. And now, not just one person doesn't know, but 100 people who looked at the picture book also don't know. And the problem is that they don't even know they don't know. That was, that's problem, that was reason number one. When you learn something, you should know what you're talking about. You should have the right shot in the Gemara. Just this week, somebody called me to discuss halacha uh, in in Pesach cleaning about you have to clean your chairs for Pesach and the Shulchan Aruch says you have to clean the kisoyis for Pesach and he's Shulchan Aruch says you have to clean the chairs for Pesach and I told him that's not what a kisei is a kisei is not the chair that you sit on in the dining room the kisei is the stand which you put your mixing bowl on to mix your dough so if you don't know what the words mean if you don't have the background the information that these things what what could be going on you walk away with misunderstanding what the Shulchan Aruch is talking about. That was one project the camp is trying to address. The second idea is that there's many parts of Yiddishkeit that most people 50 years ago or 100 years ago, most from Jews knew. And today, most from Jews don't know. And I'll give you an example. How do you cash for a chicken? So 50 years ago, every grandmother, every Jewish, every Jewish woman had a cash for a chicken. Today, there's very few Jews in the world who know how to kasher chickens. Mostly, you go to, it, all the work is done in a commercial plant. There's a few people working there, um, minimum wage workers mostly. And if the plant ever had to close down and relocate, you know, say they closed down, they closed down a plant in Iowa or something where the people were experienced in kashering, and they moved the plant to California, are they going to take the, those minimum wage workers with them to California to kasher the, the chickens over there. Who's going to kasher the chickens? So I once asked the mashkiach in a place, do you, ha- do you know how to do the work? And he says, no, I only know the fin- what the finished project look- product looks like. Right. So if you don't know how to do the work, and we're, tr- we're trusting these people to do it, so even though we have a mashkiach watching that they're doing it and the finished product looks correct, what would be if we didn't have that? We didn't have that. 
So the idea is to just to preserve the mysterious on how to kasher a chicken, how to kasher a pot. I had the story of, uh, two, three years ago. I was standing outside one of these kashering centers here in Brooklyn. The guy comes by with a pot and he says he wants to kasher a pot. And the 19-year-old boy walking over there says, no, we're not allowed to kasher that pot. He says, I just called my rub. He said, I can. He pulls out his cell phone. He calls his rub. The other rub said, I can kasher it. The, other, the kid pulls out his cell phone. No, my boss said, I can't kasher it. I don't know what the issue was in the halacha, but this rov was saying yes, while this rov was saying no. But I said, listen to the fellow. He said, you, you asked your rov. He said, you can kasher it. Take it home, fill it with hot water, boil it. It's a pot. Kasher it. It takes a few minutes. I don't know how to kasher a pot. I said, take it home, put it on the stove, <laughs> fill it with hot water, boil it. It's kashered. I don't know how to kasher a pot. We're trying to correct that. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's something really, that's what we were talking about for years. Uh, we wish that the schools would do with the yeshivas, the girls' schools, and not maybe not all the safras, although some kids are learning safras a little bit. You know, if a Rebbe is a soifer on the side, he might teach the kids a little bit. But yeah, the, things like that. But the basic, the basic uh, things about kashras, uh, you know, like you said, how to kasher. Now, I, I always say the same thing. I know it's a little bit uh, strong what I'm going to say now, so maybe those people hopefully not listening. But I get a lot of calls, sometimes from Rebbitsons. The husbands are phenomenal. I mean, you know, and they're calling me up. Not they ask a question about kashas, I understand, but they ask halacha. I said, what, what, you know, why are you asking me? My husband's always with, he says, he doesn't know. So you mean a man could learn so many years Gemara, be a, a, a big pikeach, and, and, and not feel the confidence to answer a simple shaila in your idea, which he could just he could research himself. It's it's a shanda. That's you know I'm talking about the high level. The, the average person has absolutely no experience at all, and they I could actually say that to you that they couldn't they couldn't imagine how to kasher when you're telling them just heat it up. Put the cover on, heat it up, see the big bulb bubbles, and you cash it already, it's done. I'm going to address just your first point. The schools and the yeshivas, why don't they teach this? Well, there's enough information that they have to be teaching, which we want them to be teaching. So that was the idea of a camp. That a camp, it's been as manam, the bachim are not doing anything so important anyway. So instead of playing basketball, we could be doing these things instead. So I went around to Rabbeim during the year, and to Rabbanim, and I got, they were so enthusiastic. So many of them were so enthusiastic. Meister told me, like six or seven times in that conversation, it's such a nice idea. It's such a nice idea. He kept repeating that, that phrase. Uh, you know, we have a Reuben Feinstein backing us. I spoke to camps. Every camp I spoke to, I spoke to a dozen camps to try to negotiate the place. Every camp I spoke to was very, very enthusiastic. I hear from people who call me that this sign is hanging in the coffee room of every yeshiva, every high school in, America, in the United States and Canada. I got calls from Canada that's hanging in the coffee rooms in the yeshivas in Canada that this sign is hanging. I go sometimes to, to speak with the Bachram. I, I, I spoke today in the yeshiva in Borough Park. There must have been 100 boys listening to the, the speech to promote this camp. What, what? We hope you fill up, and, and, and you really uh, meeting a very important need. I, I think that uh, it would be wonderful if people would have more experience in these areas. That's something that we, we look forward to hearing a report, a first-hand report on maybe we'll have some of the boys will come down at one time. What you want? You want, to you want on this thing? Yeah, you want to yeah. Well, we'll talk a few minutes about that too. But 
Uh, you, talk about, you want to talk about this article? Okay, this is a, yeah, okay. So maybe you give me some of your points. The, uh, the Hebrew things were raised. This is an article that is uh, that is available, and uh, anybody wants to find out about it, you can contact me. But uh, I didn't write it. <laughs> so some of the reaction, some of the items that I thought were very interesting. But you can comment on anything that you'd like to comment. There's one point that this article makes, which I've seen people discuss. The question, you sort of touched on it a little earlier, that is it possible there should be a matzah, which is baked, looks baked on the outside, and is still totally raw on the inside, ready to become chametz? Is, is the, does the concept does the concept exist comments, ready to become yeah. right? Does that concept exist at least in theory? So according to Shulchan Aruch, it's an impossibility. The Machaber says that if the outside of a matzah is is karmu panel, it's like sort of crusted, or if it, if you stretch the matzah, it doesn't pull like dough. It's not chutem mshachim. So then, the matzah is considered baked and it cannot become chametz. The Mechabah was talking about soft matzahs. The Mechabah was talking about the thicker matzahs of years ago. The question came up, now that we bake thin matzahs, and we bake them at a much higher temperature, and Rav Hankin spoke about this back in the days when they baking the, the new high temperature was 500 degrees. Yeah, yeah, the new high temperature was 500 degrees. Could, is it possible that the outside of the matzah should be baked or burnt, and the inside should still be raw? To my thin matzah, you know, ones that are like, Two millimeters, three—you know, half a centimeter thick. So if Hankin said it's possible, it's maybe it was possible. I never experimented with a 500 degree oven, and I don't know how long they left it in the oven back in his days. But what I see today is that a matzah left in the oven for, in, let's say, there are bakeries that leave the matzah in the oven for 20 seconds at 12 or 1300 degrees. If they leave it in for 21 seconds, the matzah combusts; it burns into flame. It doesn't seem possible to me that one second before that, at 20 seconds, it could have it could have the inside was um, was still moist enough and stretchable enough that it could become chametz. But a second later, it's already so dry that it's burning. I I can't understand how that could be possible. I hear the kasha, and, and logically you're right. However, I invite you to come down and see what I see with my own eyes, that it does happen. And what it's, what it's what everybody in the industry calls nas, a wet matzah. It and the problem is that it looks to you because of the because uh, of the oven and the wood and all that. It looks to you the color is out, is perfect on the outside. It feels you know kind of hard on the outside, but towards that spot wherever it is, it could be one spot over here. It could be half the matzah, but usually it's like one spot, two spots, five spots. And that spot, you feel, you can put your finger right through it, it doesn't hold. And you, yes, you did chutim nimshachim. So it's like everything else. You build a building one step at a time. So every part of that matzah gets done at a different, se- a different part of a second. And it may be a very small amount of time before it could get done and not get done, but sometimes it's in that in-between area, and that's the experience that we had. And uh, even the 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 uh, owner of the matzah bakery will come by and inspect, and he'll say, yes, these are nas, and he'll make it go back and, and tell them to do something different. So there is that area. I want to give you a story, which is a very famous story, but the kids are, uh, may mention it. 
there was a fellow who who came and and he said that um, he was he was a mashgiach, an extra mashgiach, and he went to an affair. It was fifteen hundred people from a yeshiva dinner, and he said to the, the he said to the caterer, these livers are not broiled properly. He said, what are you talking about? We've been doing this for a hundred years already. But this is what we do. Thirty years like this. You see right, clear as a bell, the outside is brown. The way it says in halacha, it's 100% ready. He said, but look inside. It's not done inside. So it, 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 it uh, and, and they had to take, a, the shah was taken out later on. They took those and, and they used it, they studied it. And sure enough, the rabbanim who examined these said, these were not done properly. So what happens to be, at least, and I know that's much thicker and it's a meat, but that what, what happens is, that it depends upon how high the fire is, how cold or that uh, liver is before, how long it's kept, how close it's put to the fire. So all of these variables change it. Now, what I'm saying is, in the matzah field, my own experience is, yes, that we chutim nimshachim, sometimes in part of a matzah, even though it looks pretty good on the outside. But I invite you to come and join me sometime when I'm baking, and let me show you what I think is a problem, and maybe you'll be able to show me that I'm wrong. But we can we can punch the matzah together, and we'll pask in the child together. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's really the point I wanted to make. Is what would I say about that same matzah? <laughs> I agree that the matzah is wet. I've seen plenty of wet matzahs in my day. I don't think that that's chametz or a lot. Uh, I don't think I don't think yet. I don't think it's possible that it can even become chametz. I think it's already past the stage of chutan mshachem. At least I've, I personally have never seen a matzah that has not been past the stage of chutan mshachem. And I want to tell you a, a quick story that I heard from Mary Stern. I, I heard it from him several, originally I heard it from 30 years ago, but then I called him and I had him tell me the story a few more times since then. Okay. He told us a story that it was about, now it's about 50 years ago that he was baking matzahs on the Lower East Side. They were baking matzah on the lower side. And one after the other, matzah was coming out soft and bendable and soggy and all that. So they, they called the car service, a cab probably, they called it in those days. They called the cab and they had to wait outside and they got a good specimen of a matzah that was really soggy and bendable and all that. It looked really bad. They wrapped it up to keep it hot and keep it exactly what it was. And it was the lower side and they zipped over. It was only a few blocks to MTJ to where Moshe was. It was right about Mincha time. Told me, you have to, right before Mincha, right after Mincha, Moshe just come. Moshe was available, I mean, and they took him, they showed him the matzah, and Moshe laughed at them. He said, that's not chutam shochem. Soft, bendable, soggy is not chutam shochem. Chutam shochem means that you can stretch it the way you stretch a challah dough before it's baked. That's what chutam shochem means. And I've never seen a matzah that was close to that. Never seen a matzah coming out of the oven. The truth is, our matzahs don't go into the oven stretchable. So you can't take them out of the oven stretchable. They, they, they were, the dough wasn't stretchable when they went in. It won't be stretchable when it comes out. It's impossible. So this will be something we'll take up again next year, and we'll be able to discuss the topic again. We're over the time already, so I want to thank you very much for joining us, Rabbi Wright. And uh, as usual, a very stimulating uh, session, and I hope uh, that people look into your camp, which is called Camp uh, Yeridea. And how would they reach anybody by Camp Yoridea? It's a telephone number, 347-407-1239. Or you do A right, A period right, R-E-I-T, at org. A period right, R-E-I-T, at campyoridea.org. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing some feedback from that camp because I think it's going to be very exciting. And I thank you very much for joining us. You'll have to come visit us at camp. We're going to be in Connecticut this year.
It sounds, it sounds very exciting. I'm going to come on a good day. Thank you.